Nihao Wojiao Maka Jiga Sir Woda Chidza Chidza Tashur Sherly R. Chunian Bayue Woman Chu Chu Beijing Shansai Woman Chuzai Beijing. What did I say? Hi. My name's Mark. This is my wife, Cheryl. This is my wife. Her name is Cheryl. Last year in August, we moved, we went to Beijing. Now we live in China. It's just great to be with you guys again. This is second year in a row. and So I appreciate the invitation of Pastor Nick, Russ, and Jeff to come and it's such a joy to just be here and want to say thanks to this body for sending Sam and Jesse uh, over to China. Just so thankful for you guys for going. Thank you for you all for sending them. I think just as the church there was really appreciating them and loving them, they had to come home. A month was gone just like that. But we appreciate your partnership in the gospel. And it's easy um, when you don't see someone's face, you don't realize maybe what they're doing, where they're at, what they're going through. But we, um, we count this church among our friends and hope that in the years to come we can strengthen those bonds. We appreciate the relationship between our sending church, Grace Baptist Church, and Taylor's and the church here. And so just we're so happy to have a group um, from your church this past week, the missions conference, and with Becky, so we had a chance to meet Becky and Christina, Caleb, David. I can't mention all the names, but what a great, what a great group! All the way down to even Aiden, and it was such a joy to be together. We we thank God for you guys. We'll turn, if you will, to Paul's letter. To the church at Rome, the first chapter. This morning we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17. Power fascinates us. Powerful and influential people, powerful equipment, powerful explosives and weapons, powerful technology all get our attention. In fact, on the way up here, driving or down here, driving south on I-95, you notice that certain vehicles identify themselves by their power. They're put out there boldly without apology. It's what distinguishes them from their competition. We like to talk about influential people. You see magazines say, 10 most influential people in the world. We, some of you guys think of horsepower and towing capacity, foot-pounds of energy, maybe megabytes per second of internet speed. We relate to power. No one really brags about being weak. We're enamored. We're fascinated with power. The Apostle Paul was also fascinated by power. He was gripped by this powerful message, the center of his whole life, the message of the cross. And he was captivated by the power of the gospel message to bring salvation to men's and women's hearts. 
It's an amazing thing to think that even a little child heart can be transformed by the power of the gospel. Paul knew that the Spirit could raise dead and soften hard hearts and make them alive and responsive to the gospel message with saving faith. And he didn't suggest multiple options to the Romans for what would be the power of God. He made this simple equation. He said, there's just one option for the power of God. He says, it's it, this. It's the gospel. The gospel was Paul's unashamed source of salvation power. This week, we could stop right now. That's what, just say that to your week. What was the main point of the message on Romans 1, 16 and 17? For Paul, the gospel was his unashamed source of salvation power. Let's read these verses together. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he says, here's, here's why. For it is the power of God for salvation, not just to a select few, he says, but what? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, let's just take a moment and familiarize ourselves with the book of Romans. So, what is it, what is it we need to know about this letter to the church at Rome? No doubt, Paul was the most well-known of the apostles. Of course, Peter, we see him kind of front and center initially. And isn't it amazing that the story didn't end in the first few verses of Acts, Acts 8? where Saul is breathing threats against the church. Isn't it phenomenal and wonderful that there's an Acts 9 and didn't didn't simply stop there, where Paul's taking care of those that were throwing the stones, sending Stephen to a martyr's death at the end of Acts 7, and then seeing how Luke tells us that the reason he was guarding those robes was he was a murderous man. And the story doesn't end there. And Paul's life is broken into in Acts 9 as God appears to him on the road to Damascus. And he was a productive author. He could write, like Paul could write, really, really well. At least 13 of the 27 New Testament books were written by him. 14 for some of you who want to give him credit for the book of Hebrews. We're not taking that up this morning. And the case could be made that Romans was as important, if not more than important, than all of Paul's, or any of Paul's other letters. Those first eight chapters, he dedicates himself to the doctrine of justification by faith. And Romans 3.28 express this doctrine well. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And Paul almost certainly wrote this letter from Corinth in the province of Achaia as he commends the servant Phoebe in 16.1 who, who lived in nearby Sincrea, something like Port's, Port Wentworth or Savannah, that close to Corinth. In fact, this morning, I don't know why, but I had this moment, I thought, 
What if Phoebe, when she was taking Paul's letter, what if something had happened to her as she traveled to Rome and never was able to deliver that letter? What if it had been lost? What if she'd been killed or died in an accident? Can you imagine or her things been stolen? But God preserved this letter to the church in Rome. And so we have it, probably delivered by Phoebe's hands. And we can safely assume that Phoebe delivered this letter to the church at Rome somewhere between 57 and 59 A.D., maybe five, six, seven years before Paul died a martyr's death in Rome. We don't know for sure. And that would put it, some say, in the period of Acts 15, so you, as we read at the end of Romans 15, if you look just for a second, turn to Romans 15 to appreciate this. In Romans 15, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, Paul talks about how badly he wants to go to Rome and his intention is to go to Rome and then go north to Spain to hit them on the way to Spain. At this point, he talks about that he's delivering, he's just about ready to deliver this gift to Jerusalem, contribution for the poor from Jerusalem. And he says, look, it's the gospel came from Jerusalem to you Gentiles, so it's only fitting that you would bring a gift for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And so he has in his hands a gift from the saints in Macedonia and Achaia to bring to the saints in Jerusalem. He talks about that. So we somewhat fit that with some, some time period around Acts 15. Rome needed no introduction. In fact, yesterday I asked Nick, I said, Nick, can I say, can I tell people, like, should I tell them we're going to Rincon? Are we going to Savannah? Like, what's appropriate? Does that insult you if I don't, is that, like, disrespectful to Rincon if we just say we're going to Savannah we come see you? Rinkin on some level needs an introduction if you're not from around here. Like, you guys get that. So we just say we're going to Savannah. Rome needed no introduction. This was the period of the thriving Roman Empire. And though Paul had not yet traveled to Rome, the gospel had already reached this great city. And he was just chomping at the bit to make it. It was just so far to the northeast of his normal, northwest of his normal travels, that he doesn't make it there till the final couple years of his life. There's five things I want us to see this morning as we consider the gospel and Paul. Five things. Here they are. I'm going to repeat them at the end. Number one, the gospel was the center of Paul's life and ministry. Number two, the gospel created no shame for Paul. Number three, and it's the centerpiece and the very title of the message is that the gospel is Paul's unashamed source of salvation power. It's the power of God for or unto salvation. Thirdly, the gospel unveils, it reveals the righteousness of God. And then lastly, the gospel creates a lasting community of faith. Well, first, the gospel was the center of Paul's life and ministry. 
You know, when we say gospel, what do we mean? Gospel simply means what? Good news. Thank you, Sam. The gospel is good news. And someone said there's no good news without what? Bad news. You know, I imagine when Sam and Jesse, what time did you fly into Beijing? Five, okay, this doesn't apply to them. But when we flew in during day, during when the sun was shining, you know the experience of, well, maybe you still did this. Your eyes are looking out. You're just so intrigued because you're about to see something for the first time. And you're like a kid in a candy store as you walk around and all the sights and smells and sounds are just new. It's first time. And the point here is that we're so familiar with the gospel that sometimes we don't notice its distinctness, its beauty, its significance. That it really is powerful. That it really is the power of God for salvation. It's truly good news for us in a world of so much bad news. And Paul was called to be an apostle. Look there in chapter 1. You see the word gospel like four times in quick succession. He says, not only was he a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only was he called to be an apostle, but he was literally set aside. And some of you who cook appreciate the idea of setting aside stuff like juice. You're cooking something and you save juice. You reserve like, reserve one cup of liquid for this part of the dish. Paul was reserved. He was set apart for the gospel of Christ. That's why he could say the end of Galatians 6, God forbid that I should boast in anything save the cross of the Son of God. Just like Samuel was set apart by his mother Hannah who said in the middle of her infertility, Lord, if you just give me one child, you just give me one, You give him to me, I reserve him for you. He can be yours, Lord. Paul was set aside for the service of the gospel. He understood that he was a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was not his own. It was that of another. Then look in verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And keep reading in that though Paul had never met the church at Rome, look what he says. It's amazing. He says that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He had never heard their voices. He'd never seen their their faces. He'd never walked up and shook their hand or gotten an embrace from the church at Rome. But he says this extraordinary statement that it's without ceasing that he always mentions them in his prayers. And up to this point, he'd been unsuccessful in making it to Rome. That's why he talks about in chapter 15 his just longing desire to get there. And he says he wants to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them, which he could then, he says, he interprets that. He says in verse 12, he says, I want to see you, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Then he says, this is what it looks like, that we may be mutually encouraged 
by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He says, I'm under obligations. Look in verse 14. He says, I'm un- I am under an obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is the language of a man whose life is not his own. This is the language of a man who's been plucked like a brand from the fire and says, you, Lord Jesus, direct me to my life's mission. And the whole Gentile world was Paul's target. None of it was off limit. Can you imagine that for Paul, the whole world was his mission? You think of this. He felt the weight and the responsibility of the obligation. You know, sometimes we like to think of this phrase, the power of choice. Choices, in effect, empower us. But for Paul, it was something different. He felt the power of obligation. This gave him energy. And in 1 Corinthians 9.16, he's absolutely crystal clear about this. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity, he says, is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And then he says, back to chapter 1 here, verse 15, right before our verse, is a man under obligation is a man longing to see a church for the first time, a man committed to praying for them, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul had not yet been to Rome, but he's praying without ceasing for them. And he absolutely affirmed them for their faith. But listen to this. He still intended on preaching the gospel them. We've got to be cured of this thinking that the gospel is for those simply who've never heard it before or for those who are still unconverted. You and I need the gospel today, August 3rd, 2014, as much as someone who's never heard it for the first time. To say it in a, in a certain way, the Roman church still needed the gospel. They began the Christian life with the gospel. Now, the point Paul is making here is they must continue and finish the race that's the Christian life with that same gospel. You never graduate beyond the power, the need, the wonder, and the transformational uniqueness of the gospel of Christ. Paul, here's the summary. He says, I was set apart for the gospel... I serve God with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And he says, I'm under obligation. I'm no longer free. I'm not my own man. I am Christ. I'm his bondservant. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Secondly, I want us to see that the gospel created no shame for Paul. And I think the, ro- the little word here in verse 6, 4 makes sense. He says, I'm under obligation. I'm eager to preach the gospel, verse 15. And because I'm, I'm under obligation, I'm eager to preach it, he can say, the reason is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the Roman church because he had no embarrassment over it. It caused that old apostle no shame. 
It was the greatest source of pride. There is sometimes a point, right, when young people reach the age of 13 or 14, like Mark Twain said, when I was 14, my dad was the biggest fool I knew. But when I was 21, I couldn't believe how much he learned in those seven years. It's easy for us sometimes to feel embarrassment or shame for things. I thought about this. Have you ever watched American Idol and someone can't sing, but they think they can? And you're just watching in your living room on TV, but you feel this sense of embarrassment, this uncomfortableness of they're not aware, they're, they're not aware of their lack of ability. They have no shame over it, and you feel it here. Consider how often we feel shame or even embarrassment. Sometimes it's our background. Some of us think, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. I'm from a broken family. My parents got divorced when I was six. When I was eight, I needed braces, but my parents couldn't afford it. So I hear I'm 42 years of age and I still need braces. I didn't have a chance to get a college education. My dad died when I was 10. And there are things, there's real hurt in our background that sometimes it makes it easy for us to look at others and feel like we lack what they have. In truth, it's true. For maybe some of us, it's our looks. Four years ago, I had a little surgery on my nose, most surgery for basal cell carcinoma, and I realized I'll never get, a ch- I'll never get any acting gigs. I'm done. Get a little scar there. Big, long incision. I'm psyched. That's it. We had a friend give a testimony at the conference this week. So all you saw Lou, I never realized Lou has a birth defect where his legs are completely bowed. He looks like he's been riding a horse for 70 years. It's a birth defect. It's a source, a little source of shame for him. Sometimes it's a crooked nose or teeth. Maybe it's a stutter, a receding hairline. Maybe... You feel short or too tall or maybe, maybe you're, you're too short from the waist to your feet. I don't know. Shame and embarrassment are part, even, we're not, even though those words don't come to our mind, they're part of the way we think and live. Paul felt none of this for the gospel, not one ounce of shame or embarrassment. The, the gospel was Paul's pride and joy, the very center of his life. And we too can have no shame over the gospel. I want us to see that the gospel thirdly is the power of God unto salvation. Why is Paul not ashamed of it? It's right here in verse 6, verse 16, second part. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he uses this little Greek word that connects the first thought to the second that explains the first. It's the little word gar. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want you to just say this. We did this a little bit last week in the conference. Just say these after me. The gospel possesses power. Say that. The gospel possesses power. Okay, now say, the gospel possesses the power of God. The gospel possesses the power of God. And then lastly, the gospel possesses the power of God for salvation. 
The gospel possesses the power of God for salvation. And we can do it again, and that it, it would be to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This word for power is dunamis, a root for our word dynamic or dynamite, literally explosive power. Paul is making a statement here of identity, saying this is that. The gospel literally equals the power of God. That's a biblical equation for you math types. The gospel equals sign the power of God. It was Paul's life-giving dynamic. That's why in his last letter to Timothy, Paul writes this from his Roman jail cell in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened. Literally, get your life-giving power and dynamic. Get your horsepower for living from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this is what he's saying. If you've ever thought about it, you look at this passage. And it gets me excited when I think about Nick and your church's commitment to go to Nigeria. So watch how I'm going to connect Nigeria for a moment with this point. So I could say it this way even to Nick. Nick, Pastor Nick, be energized by the life-giving power from the grace that is in Christ Jesus and in the message of the gospel as you go to Nigeria and entrust to other faithful men the gospel that has been entrusted to you. You go energized by the grace of God and you go entrusting that energizing gospel to faithful men who will in succession pass on the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The third thing I want us to see about this idea that the gospel is the power of God for salvation is that 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 power is not disconnected or meaningless. You know how frustrating it is to waste power, to feel like you've run and you've paid for power and gotten nothing for it. But the power of God is directly connected to and expressed by a real, vital, saving faith. If you have saving faith, if you and I have that, that's the gift of God communicated by the power of God through the message of the gospel for you and me. Paul says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, fourth, I want to see us to see that the gospel unveils God's righteousness. We're all naturally excited when something new is unveiled. Who likes to unwrap presents on Christmas Day? Yeah. Who likes surprises? Who likes to be surprised? Yeah. Life is so humdrum. It's so ordinary, right? It's like it's so nice to have the zazz of something new. The gospel unveils God's righteousness in a new way. A groom gets to see his bride for the first time in her wedding dress. Our oldest is getting married January 3rd. And I'm hearing this discussion about first look. Like, what's first look? What's that? So some brides try for weeks or months to conceal their wedding dress from their husbands-to-be. But I heard that now for wedding photographers, there's this thing called first look, like right before the wedding. Has anyone heard of that? Is that? Okay. Maybe that's been around, but we just had anyone getting married in our family. So, wow, first look. 
Yeah, maybe Lee and Becky had something like that. A first look, right? Yeah, all right. And the gospel's like this for the world. It unveils the beautiful righteousness of God in a new and startling way. Paul says this unveiled righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And I like the way the NIV, though I'm not normally a fan of the NIV, but you can still appreciate, you know, appreciate its contribution to the translations of the world. It says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Many have debated the meaning of this phrase. And we're not going to sort it out today. I noticed that in his works, John Murray has 10 pages devoted to trying to sort out what this phrase means, the righteousness of God. Some think it means that we are now righteous. It's that legal status we have as Christians as being right before God. Others think it's God's declarative act. When God says, Tris, I declare you righteous in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is on account of the, the gift of faith that even the Holy Spirit has imparted to you where only Jesus Christ's cross is the thing that you cling to. But then there's a third way is looking at it as, well, maybe it's simply God's righteousness, the true righteousness of God. Even as Jeff read this morning from Psalm 19, and we think of the righteous God and we see him in his works, in his word, even his law that reflects a God so transcendently holy that we find ourselves saying with Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We at least can embrace that sense of God's righteousness and the gospel work together and we'll be unpacking that for the rest of our lives. Well, fifthly, I want us to see that not only is the gospel at the center of Paul's life and ministry, not only did the gospel create no shame for Paul, not only is the gospel the source, the unashamed source of salvation power, not only does the gospel unveil or reveal the very righteousness of God, but fifthly, it creates a community a lasting community of faith. And what's Paul doing here? He's quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul quotes this again also in Galatians 3.11. The writer of the book of Hebrews does as well, in Hebrews 10.38, that we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who advance in the faith of Jesus Christ. Whatever Paul would tell the Romans about the basics of the Christian life, it was a message of the importance of faith. We are to live not by sight, but by faith. Not in dependence on our own works of the law or of anything in us, but in faith, as Paul says. The life that I now live, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God. And we amen that with the apostle. It's the DNA of God's people, of those who've been declared righteous before God. We say from the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, what? Simply 
to your cross, I cling. We bring nothing. We relate to Dr. Jack Miller when he says, take cheer. You're a lot worse than you think you are. That's why the gospel is so wonderful. You'll take your whole life figuring out that you're much more soiled, much more rotten, much more in need of God's grace than you had ever had any idea. That's the wonder of the gospel. Is we just have no idea of it. In his book, The Great Exchange, Jerry Bridges writes this about Paul's purpose in his letter to the Romans. And this connects with this idea of creating a community of faith. He says, Paul's main purpose is to depict the redeemed sinner's relationship to God and more specifically to illuminate the fact that Christ's great atonement is the heart of the gospel, is the sole basis for the justification for sinners united to Christ through faith. And I want to add, and united to one another through faith. As we're united to faith, the wonder is that I'm connected to Becky and Becky is connected to Gary and Gary by faith is connected to Quinn. And we with believers in that great countless number of people from every tribe and language and people and nation so that you can say to a Chinese believer or a Nigerian believer, you are my brother through faith in Christ, my brother and sister through faith in Christ. I also want us to consider that the church redeemed and gathered is a church that's a gospel-created community of faith. It's the soil of the gospel that our community will grow in. No, no gospel soil, no growth. It's just at that point, it's like coming up here and stapling fruit to this tree and thinking that we're really fruitful. We're not. It's only the gospel that will generate organic growth as a body. Look around. Just look around. Everyone scan. Just turn around. Rotate. And look around just for a moment. Maybe make eye contact with one person. Okay? Say this with me. God has designed us to be a community of faith through our union in Christ. Ready? God has designed us to be a community of faith through our union in Christ. Well, what are our takeaways this morning? How do we take Romans 1, 16 and 17 and use it practically the week of August 3rd, 2014, the next seven days? Okay, first, number one. Let's endeavor in a fresh way to make the gospel central to our lives by speaking it to one another. You ever have the experience like you open your fridge and you find something that you cooked on May 28th and it's in a little Tupperware container? Like, it's not fresh and frankly, you don't want it. It's, it's only good to be thrown out or go down the... Yeah, Sam and Jesse just got back. You may have something in your fridge that's a little old unless you were really able to knock it out well. Let's endeavor to speak of the gospel's truth, its wonder, its ongoing significance, its power, its necessity, the wisdom and the righteousness of God which it reveals, the unspeakable wonder that God's mercy and his justice meet in the cross of Christ. You know the movie, what's the movie where it talks about my precious? What's that movie? Yeah. Let the gospel be 
our precious. You see, let it be our precious. Anything worth doing well, someone said, eventually is worth doing poorly initially until through enough practice and repetition you can do it well. We learned that this past year with Chinese, okay? All right? So men, this is a kind of like a clarion call to the men of Ephesus Church. Let's develop this art of initiating and sustaining gospel conversations in our home. Not artificially, but organically, winsomely, naturally. And it may be uncomfortable if that's not kind of the habit in your home. But to begin doing that, not just with our wives, and, but with our children, and then guests that come into our home. Where it's a real sense that if you come here, this is like the gospel is like the elephant in the room that we must talk about. That <laughs> can't be missed. Speak the word to one another. Second, let's cultivate a no-shame approach to the gospel like the Apostle Paul did, because we understand its unique ability to transform. It's, it's reminding us to think of the gospel not so much as simply new information, but as transformational, as something that changes us. Some of you who like to grow things get this. It's the beauty of planting a seed or a little plant. And 60, 75 days later, harvesting a squash or an eggplant or a jalapeno pepper, it's seeing the transformation and growth. The gospel is designed to do that. And that's why we should have this no shame apology to it. Let the gospel of Christ be like the friend, friend whom you want everyone to meet. The Lord Jesus Christ, the person you want the whole world to We talked about this in Sunday school. It's like talking to someone and saying, can I tell you about the most amazing thing that ever happened to me? Can I talk to you or tell you about the most amazing person I've ever met? Can I tell you about the single thing that flipped my house, my life, my hopes upside down, that gave me hope? when I was mired in despair. Three times in 2 Timothy 1, Paul uses the word ashamed. In verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. And then in verse 12 through maybe 13, 12, 13, Paul says that though he suffers, he says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And he says, I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. And then he commends Onesiphorus there in Second Timothy 1, who had searched for Paul throughout the city of Rome, found him, and he says in his own words, he refreshed me. What does Paul say about Onesiphorus? He says, he was not ashamed of my chains. The call this morning is to think of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ as the single message and the single person that we have the greatest pride, not because of anything in ourselves, 
but that we would be worthy and so privileged to have been brought from death to life that we want to tell everybody, just like the man blind who was able to see who it was that gave us sight. Lastly, let's think of ourselves and others as always within reach of the gospel's power. This is what it means. It means we love one another in such a way that we don't put people in boxes and say they were ju- they're just like that. They were just born that way. They'll never change. That's just his personality. The gospel and its transforming power, of which Paul was not ashamed, is able to give us grace to begin to have victory over those sins that trip us up, those sins that you think of as besetting, those sins that you've struggled with and you thought it was dead, but once in a while it raises its head and reminds you that it might be close to the grave, but it's not dead. Or it's in the coffin, but it's like banging, trying to knock the top off. The gospel and its power is something we're always within reach of. And that's why Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. We need the gospel, all of it. Whatever Jesus is, whatever he's done, we need all of it. Not only from the moment we were converted, but now we need it every day. We say with this hymn writer, every hour I need you. Every waking moment of our lives, even as C.J. Mahaney says in his little book on humility, when, our, when we're first conscious that we're awake, even tomorrow morning, August 4th, Monday, maybe you go into work, school, maybe you have the day off, and you wake up and you confess, like Paul, oh, Lord Jesus, today I need the transforming power of your gospel. The gospel that not only has the power to save me, not only has the power to preserve me, but also has the power to bring me to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. It's to that gospel and that Savior this morning, I beg you and I call you to look. Amen.